Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's great to see you today. We have a wonderful message from the Word in Colossians chapter 3. As we've been looking in the past um, several weeks, we've looked at a whole series of messages on things that don't help us become holy. Legalism, asceticism, mysticism. They have an appearance of wisdom, they have an appearance of religion, and yet they miserably fail to help us become like Christ. And when we turn the corner into Colossians chapter 3, we now see Paul's laser beam focus on our relationship with Christ. This is a great truth that if we could grasp it, we can do what we're going to be called to do in this message, which is to kill our sin. That is the call here. We can't separate the messages. Obviously, we can't preach the whole book of Colossians in one setting. I guess we could. I'm not sure what that would look like. It would take the perseverance of the saints for that to happen. So we break it down into bite-sized pieces. And last week, we talked about the fact that we've been raised with Christ, that we are now united with him. Christ has been raised from the dead, and we have been given that resurrection power to be transformed into the image of Christ. He tells us our life is hidden with Christ in God. We have this union with Christ. He was dead, he was buried, he was raised. We have died to the old man. We have been buried in baptism. We've been raised to walk a new life. And so the resurrection power of Christ is real in our lives And then he tells us that Christ, who is our life, will one day appear in glory. So he's told us we're united with Christ. We're going to be with him forever. Look at our future. It is so bright we need shades. The problem is a lot of times in life we get ourselves down and looking at the wrong places. So we're going to deal with that today. And we're going to deal with how do we deal with sin in our lives. Nancy Lee DeMoss puts it well. The call to holiness is a call to follow Christ. The call to holiness is a call to follow Christ. A pursuit of holiness that is not Christ-centered will soon be reduced to moralism. Be good, do this, do that, completely disconnected from Christ. Pharisaical self-righteousness which comes from legalism, and futile self-effort. Such pseudo-holiness leads to bondage rather than to liberty. It is unattractive to the world, and it's unacceptable to God. Only by fixing our eyes and our hope on Christ can we experience that authentic, warm, inviting holiness that he alone can produce in us. We must remember this as we proceed to the next part of Paul's letter. The call to holiness is a call to follow Christ, knowing who we are in Christ and growing in our love for him because of what he's done for us must be the foundation from which everything else springs forth or our efforts will be short-lived and futile. Now, we've all experienced futile Christian living, haven't we? 
We've all experienced getting our focus on other things that we thought would help us become spiritual and it either produced bondage or lack of freedom or it simply didn't produce what God called us to produce. And so the focus of Paul in Colossians 3 is set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above. Well, who's above? Christ, seated at the right hand of God. He seats at the right hand of God because he's honored, because he has done the great work. The greatest work in human history was done at the cross where Christ, the perfect sacrifice, laid down his life to set us free from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and eventually the presence of sin. In the Battle of Iwo Jima, one of the famous Pacific battles in World War II, the important thing, and in all the battles in the Pacific, the important thing was when you took an island, you had to first establish a beachhead. You had to first get your troops on the island in some tangible way before you could ever take the island. And so for 74 days, the U.S. Air Force and Navy bombarded Iwo Jima, softening it up so that we could get our Marines onto the island. The beachhead was attempted on February 19th of 1944, I think. And in the assault, we finally got ourselves onto the beach. But with all the bombarding, we still had 20,000 Japanese entrenched all over the island. And the troops' job was to go place by place to root out every enemy warrior there. There was no place on the island that was safe. There was, you were within shooting distance of someone anywhere on this narrow little island. So if you were ever off duty, the only place you were safe was in your foxhole. At the end of the battle, at the end of this, this, um, this siege of Iwo Jima, it was finally captured completely on March 26th. So from February 19th to March 26th, the battle raged on. The beachhead was established, and once it was established, it wasn't a matter of if, it was just a matter of when we would completely have victory on that island. The final battle was 200 Japanese who had a final suicide mission who went out to attack the airport, the airstrip there, and they were destroyed. 20,000 Japanese soldiers lost their lives. 4,700 Marines lost their lives. And these Marines knew that as they went, they were literally going to their graves as they went to uproot the Japanese who had all these tunnels and all these pillboxes and were completely settled in to the island. This is a great picture of where we're at in our Christian lives. Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, has established a beachhead in your life and in my life. Victory is sure. It came at a great cost, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, our marching orders are 
take the rest of the island. That is our marching order. And we see that here in Colossians 3, 5. After we've seen all this about what Christ has done, about who we are in relationship with him, he now says this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So here we have it. Because of what Christ has done, we now have the ability to put sin to death. We're going to look today at the reasons for killing sin, and then we're going to look at how to kill sin based upon the scripture and what God has told us. The reasons for killing sin, first of all, is if we look in verse 5, we have a, a, a command put to death. It's present tense, it's continuous. In other words, for these soldiers, they were on the island for a month or more before they finally gained victory. For us, our battle continues until we see Christ. Continue to put to death the sin that is in your life. As we look at these sins in verse 5, we see immorality which is any kind of illicit sexual conduct outside of marriage. We see impurity, which is back into the thoughts, the unclean thoughts that end up producing the what? Immorality. Then he says passions and evil desires. And here we are getting down to the root more of what's going on in a person's life. What produces the impure thoughts? Well, it's our desires. Our evil desires that are there. Why? Because of the fall of Adam. Because of the fall of Adam, we are all born with a sin nature. It has sinful desires that produces impure thoughts that produces what? Impure actions. And then we have covetousness. And what is covetousness? It's real simple. It's wanting things and people that do not belong to us. Whatever that is. So he kind of deals with these sins in order from the action to the thoughts, to the desires, to the very root problem of those, of those sins. Then he comes and he deals with anger, rage, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Anger is more the inward. It's a, it's a burning hatred for other people. And we're seeing some of this manifest itself in our country as there's, as there's Factions and, and fighting going on between, between people who are Americans based upon deep-seated hurt and anger and all those things that we're dealing with. We have wrath, which are outbursts of passion. We have malice, which is ill will towards one's neighbor. We have slander, which is railing and defaming another's character. So it goes from something inward to what? Something outward. We begin to attack our fellow man. We begin to tear down his name, his reputation. Obscene talk is destructive words we use to tear others down. 
If you've ever been in a home or you've ever been in a situation where you're dealing with someone who's constantly being destructive with their words, they can really just tear us down. And Paul says, these type of behaviors are inappropriate for God's people. Christ has saved you, and he's not chosen just to wipe it all away, but he's called you now to completely focus on him and to begin to root out all of this sin in our life. We see a picture of this in the Old Testament, don't we? Do you remember in Joshua, they came into the promised land, they went through a series of military campaigns, and they secured the land. Then each tribe was called upon to finish removing the inhabitants of the land in their territory. And they were to do what? Trust in God, walk by faith, and to continue rooting out the evil that was in the land. Unfortunately, there were very few of the tribes of Israel that did that. Most of them enjoyed settling into the new land. They were busy with their homes and all the things that were going on. And they really didn't take serious this call to root out the rest of the sin in the land. And what happened? They ended up becoming entangled with the worship practices of the people of that land. And it ended up causing the judgment of God to fall upon them. Brothers and sisters, in today's message, we're called to root out sin in our life. The sign of a growing Christian is rooting out sin. It's an aggressive posture. He doesn't just say, forget about sin or, you know, try to live with sin in an understanding way. He uses the word mortify, kill. That's... that's, That's a harsh term. We have to deal with our sin aggressively. Well, why do we need to do that? James 1.14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So temptation first appeals to what? Our desires down here. When desire conceives, it produces what? Sin. And once sin is full grown, it produces what? Death. Sin is serious. A lot of times we think we have our sin on a leash. It's okay. It's not going to be a problem. Everything is going to be all right. We can take care of it. When we lived in North Carolina, we had the industrious idea to raise some meat chickens. And so the only problem is, is that Samson and Liesel, our German shepherds, love to play with chickens. And so as long as we kept them in their little pinned in area, they were safe and they were growing. And we had all kinds of trauma and tragedy trying to keep these chickens alive. And one day I drove home from work and I see Samson out in the front yard running around and I see the chickens out in the front yard running around. I come in a little bit disturbed and go, what, what's going on? I mean, why are the chickens out there and why is Samson out there? And one of my daughters, who will remain nameless, said, well, Daddy, I've spent some time training Samson, and he's, he's good to go now. He's not going to hurt the chickens anymore. And so I was listening to her, and as I was listening to her, she was sitting, standing here, I was here, and here was the window out on the front of our property. And as those words were leaving her mouth, 
I see Samson prancing across the front with, you guessed it, a chicken in his mouth. Sin is this way. Sin can't be trained. Sin can't be quartered off to a little part of your, of your life. Sin is deadly. It is deadly. In the Great Plague that hit Europe, many of the people in cities where the Great Plague came, they would run out into the country trying to find safety, trying to find protection, trying to get away from the plague. And many of the the farmers and people out in the country were like, no, 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 you cannot come out here because you've been in there where the plague has been. And some of the people who died from the plague, people were obviously poor, and they didn't understand what caused the plague. And so a lot of times, if someone died, they would take their clothes, and they, would, they, would, they had relatives in the country, they would send their clothes out to the country where their relatives were. And while the relatives might, first of all, Rejoice that here's this care package of clothes. Once they found out that these clothes had been worn by somebody who had died of the plague, it was they could not get those clothes off fast enough. And burning, burning those clothes to, to keep away the plague. This has to be our attitude towards sin. Sin is not something that just brings a little pleasure and it's okay, it's not that big a deal. All sin has one destination, it has one objective, and that is to destroy you and me. We had a tragedy this last week in the loss of one of Hollywood's comedians, Robin Williams. And it was a tragic thing to see a man who would be considered successful in, all the areas, in a lot of areas of his life But he battled with anxiety, he battled with depression, and he never, there was no one who could rescue him from that. To the point it brought him to his own death. This is the destination that sin has for us. Whatever the sin is, however harmless you think it is, it will kill you. Now, there's great news. If we turn to Colossians 3, 7, we see that Paul says this, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. Paul says the Colossian people struggled with this sin list. This is not, Paul just didn't pick a sin list that doesn't apply to the people. And they're going, wow, we really can't relate to that, Paul, because we really weren't into sexual immorality or impurity or lust or evil desires or greed. No. Paul is mentioning the sins they dealt with. And Paul says in Colossians 3, 7 that they once walked in that. The great news about what we're talking about today, brothers and sisters, is there is victory. There is victory. Paul also says this in in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Listen to this. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither will the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
and listen to his next statement. And such were some of you. Past tense. You were in this list. But he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. These people were saved out of sinful, sinful situations. Deep sin, embedded sin, and yet the power of Christ set them free and they used to be sexually immoral or homosexual or whatever it was and now they're what they are free they are free this is what christ has done he has purchased victory for us in our lives so first the first reason we should kill sins because christ commands us to second Sin grieves God, Ephesians 4.30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. We have this relationship with the God of the universe and sin grieves him. And our sin should grieve us that it grieves him. Third, as we've already alluded to, if we don't kill sin, sin will kill us, James one. 14. Richard Baxter said, kill sin before it kills you. Sin is serious. Sin can be debilitating. But Christ has overcome for us. Let's talk about how to kill sin. How are we going to kill sin? All of us have had different attempts at trying to kill our sin. We have had sheer willpower. I will not do that again. We have found people to be accountable with and to tell them our stories of our failures. That still hasn't solved the problem. We have taken suggestions from others of how to possibly kill sin and found ourselves still still having to fight this fight and not being victorious, not making progress in our Christian lives. First step to kill your sin is treasure Christ. Treasure Christ. Remember last week we talked about that our heart is always going to have its affection on something. It can be changed from one thing to the next, but there is always going to be something it treasures. We need to treasure Christ. Let's turn to Philippians 4. 4. Paul is talking here. He gets into a whole discussion of dealing with anxiety and anxiousness. But at the beginning of this little passage in 4.4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Notice the command. It's another command. Rejoice in the Lord. Sometimes, every once in a while, just on Sunday mornings. No, it is what? Rejoice in the Lord always. Paul has focused on that in Colossians, the first part of Colossians 3. Rejoice that we have been raised with Christ. Rejoice that we have died, we have, the power of sin has been t- 
crushed in our life. Rejoice that we're in union with Christ and that we have his power by the spirit and by the word to begin to put to death sin. Rejoice that one day when he appears in glory, we will appear with him in glory. Our future is unbelievable in Christ. So how do we deal with the sin in, our, in the world right now? We focus on Christ. We treasure Christ. We need to know who we are. You are in Christ. If you're a believer, you're in Christ. And we need to act like who we are. Let's look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 is a tremendous passage. I wish I had time to unpack it all, but I want you to hear just the flow because Paul says the same thing from one letter to the next. In Ephesians 2, 1, listen, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We heard about that back in chapter 2, didn't we? Of Colossians. In which you once walked according to the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But, I love the word but. We're going down the drain, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. That is the most amazing news. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Why do we need to look up above and see Christ seated? Because we are seated with him there. His destination is our destination. Please, let's clean out our ears so we can hear this. The glory of what's happened to us is we've now been united with Christ and his destination is ours. His glory, we will be glorified. He will reign, we will reign. It is unbelievable what we've been given in Christ so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. You didn't save yourself by your works. You were saved by the sacrificial death of Christ. Then listen to this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance for us to walk in. You and I, something happened. When Christ encountered us, we became a new creation. We still struggle with our sins. A lot of that's because we don't understand what we've been given. And we don't understand how to put our sin to death. But he says we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has lined out for us to do. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a lot of us know this verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's a Christian, in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This week, we're dealing with putting off the old man. Next week, we're going to deal with putting on the new man. Taking off the old clothes of the sinful nature and putting on the new clothes of Christ and his righteousness and his love and his compassion. God has a plan more than just to forgive us of our sins. His plan is to make us like him and to make us holy and righteous. He's already given us his righteousness, but he wants it to be applied to our lives so that it begins to become something that's real in us. Something that's real in us. In treasuring Christ, enjoy your relationship with him. How do I treasure Christ? I spend time with him. I read his word. I meditate on his word. I pray to him. I trust him. I know that sin is too big for me to deal with on my own. But I know that I've been given everything I need for life and godliness. I've been given the spirit. I've been given the word. I've been given the church. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. So as I relate with him, every day my prayer to him is, Lord, help me. Give me grace to live this day. Give me grace to put this sin to death. Give me grace to focus on you. Give me grace to put off the old man and put on the new man. This is why Hebrews 4.16 is there. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I used to think that was, oh, okay, I finally got a financial situation I need to deal with. I'm going to ask God for some help. I didn't know how desperately I needed God's grace. I allowed sin to just live in my life. If we understand the battle with sin, we're going to be at the throne all day, every day. All day, every day, asking for grace to help us put to death these things. We've already been told in Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. We're told in John 15, if you're not connected to Christ, if you don't abide in Christ, you will bear no fruit. The transformation of our lives is dependent on being connected to Christ. It's drawing upon the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a matter of faith. Trusting that God's going to do something that we're not even sure is going to happen because we know our own weakness. We all have fought sin. We've all been defeated by sin. And a lot of us think that's just the way life's going to be the rest of the way. This passage says it can be defeated. You'll still fight with sin all the rest of your life, but you're going to make progress moving forward from grace into grace if you treasure Christ. A lot of us are trying to make bricks without straw. We're trying to muster holiness in our own efforts. That is a failed plan from the get-go. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, I would rather make bricks without straw than to try to obey the Sermon on the Mount in my own strength. Can't be done. 
But we don't just have our own strength. If we're in Christ, we have the power of the Spirit living in us. We have the availability of the Word of God to begin to deal with these things. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. As we understand the battle of sin and how intense it is, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 makes sense. Notice the three simple, short commands. Rejoice always. Rejoice what? In my circumstances? No. Rejoice in who? Christ. Pray without ceasing. Well, I, I, you know, I just don't have a lot to pray about. You don't? Then you don't understand the battle you're in with sin. We have stuff to pray about every day regarding our sin and Christ. That'd be like the, the Marines sitting on Iwo Jima going, you know, I don't have a whole lot to pray about. There's only 20,000 Japanese hidden down, tucked away, and we got to go find them without getting killed and root them out. That's your assignment. You've got sin embedded, rooted, part of your everyday thinking in your life. And only by the word of God and the Holy Spirit is it going to begin to become rooted out in our life. Pray without ceasing and what? Give thanks in all circumstances. One of the greatest remedies for sin is gratefulness. It is amazing. Why do you and I sin? It's real simple. We become focused on ourselves and then we pick our sin of choice because we feel sorry for ourselves in one way, shape, or form. Thankfulness takes our focus off ourselves and puts it on God and reminds us of God's faithfulness and his goodness and his care in our lives. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. A lot of us want to know God's will, don't we? We hear a lot of talk about want to know God's will. This scripture declares us real clearly, these three commands are God's will for you. Real simple. Unfortunately, many seek to get rid of their sin by focusing on it. Remember we talked about the aircraft, the air strip, and trying to land in the small airstrips last week. And how the danger for the pilots was they would focus on the hazards and not focus on the airstrip. And they would eventually hit whatever hazards were there. In Pilgrim's Progress, we had this incredible picture of the man with the muckrake. Interpreters taking Christian and the people through, and he comes to this room, um, and he says, here's, we see a man who could look no way but downwards with a muckrake in his hand. There, should also, there, there stood also one over his head with a celestial crown in his hand and proffered him that, that crown for the muckrake. But the man did not neither look up nor regard but raked to himself the straws and the small sticks and the dust on the floor. Interpreter said, thou hast said right, he said, and his muckrake doth show his carnal mind. And whereas thou seest him rather give heed to rake up straws and sticks and the dust of the floor than to what he says that calls to him from above. He can't even hear the call from above because he's so focused on raking the muck. It is to show that heaven is but a fable to some. 
Even to some Christians, heaven and what Christ has given us and our union with Christ is really nothing more than a story, a fable. And we really don't, we really don't believe it's true. And so we are like this man. We're continuing to rake, continue to look for something valuable, focused on the things of the earth, trying to deal with our sin, really focused on our sin. I got to get rid of this sin. This is really bothering me. Totally focused on that. Now, whereas it's also shown thee that the man could look no way but downwards, it is to let thee know that earthly things, when they are with power upon men's minds, quite carry their hearts away from God. If your solution to solving your sin is to focus on your sin, you're like this person right here. Heads down, you don't see Christ seated on the right hand of God. You don't realize that you're in union with Christ, that you're a new creation in Christ. All you can see is the muck that you're messing with. If we don't get our head up, if we don't put our eyes on Christ, this is, this is meaningless. And many Christians, this, this is a beautiful picture of a lot of us at times in our life. We get so tangled up in the muck, so focused on that, we lose sight of whose we are and what he's done for us. If he would just but look up and see the crown and realize he's a child of the king, what a difference would be his life. Robert Murray McShane says, for everyone, for everyone, look at your sins. Take 10 looks at Christ. If you must look at your sin, and you do when you have to confess, take one look at your sin and 10 looks at Christ. Keep Christ as your focus. The psychologist says, look within. The opportunist says, look around. The optimist says, look ahead. The pessimist says, look out. The cultist, I just enjoy seeing some people jump. The cultists, the people we just talked about in, in Colossians 2, with legalism, asceticism, and mysticism, they say, look down to pick up a new set of chains, to put on a new straight jacket, to bow down before a new guru tyrant. Let somebody else control your life. Get involved in all these regulations. God says, look up. Look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. That is the greatest news, friends. It's connecting Colossians 1 through 4 with 5 through 8. If we disconnect 1 through 4 from 5 through 8, what do we end up with? Okay, let's buck up and get tough and let's go kill some sin. Mm -mm. That doesn't work. So first, treasure Christ. Love him more and more every day. Depend upon him more and more for the strength to live the Christian life. 
Ask him to help you in your relationship with him. Ask him to show himself more, more of himself to you. Second, not only do you need to treasure Christ, you need to embrace humility. The root of all of our sin, these, both these lists and all sin you find in Scripture, there is one root to all of it. It is our pride. Whether it's worry, whether it's lust, whether it's slothfulness, whether it's a critical spirit, whatever it is, the root is pride. It's about our way. It's about our pleasure. It's about our glory. Whenever you trace it all the way down, that is the root. We spend a lot of time up here trying to knock off the fruit. But the root is pride. And the only way to uproot that root is to embrace the fact that we need Jesus for everything. We need him for salvation. We need him for sanctification. We need him for glorification. We need him all the time in every situation. Philippians 2, 3 and 4, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So when we're fighting our fight with sin, and we're calling out to God for help, and we still find ourselves falling into a sin, that's an opportunity for us to be humble and to confess and to acknowledge that before him and to cry out for more grace and more help to battle what we're dealing with. First Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time. God will humble us it's better for us to bow low, humble ourselves. I love the slogan of Gary Randall who worked with Hope Farms in Fort Worth. On his, leaving his office, he had a little, little chalkboard that said, stay low. Don't think more highly of yourself than you should. Understand that everything you have comes from God. He is your source. He is your life. You no longer live your life. Christ now lives his life in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So every time there is a victory, there is a celebration and a worship of Christ. So we need to brace the humility. Third, in order to deal with this sin, we have the root of pride, but we also have other false ideas that go along with that. Third is Christian truth must be applied to produce Christian living. We have to know the word of God, and we have to be able to replace the false lie we're believing that's causing us to then go in to get into the sin. We must replace that with the truth of God's word. 
And so in our Christian lives, when you're dealing with sin, if you're just up here dealing with the fruit and you're not down here dealing with the false thought, the false belief that you have held on to. So for the guy who's addicted to you know, pornography or whatever, his belief is this is what's going to really satisfy me. Well, that's false in every way, shape, or form. Or the person who's a constant worrier, well, if I just worry about this enough, it's going to solve the problem. That's false. Do we trust Christ? Is Christ more beautiful than what you're watching? Is Christ more glorious than this? Dealing with the false idea and replacing it with the truth of God's word. Romans 12, 2. Be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. Renewing is putting off false ideas and putting on what? Truth. Putting on truth. If you continue to believe the false ideas, there's no ground being gained in trying to conquer sin. Jesus tells us, John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is why the scripture is so important to us. Right doctrine is so important. It's not so we can, be, we can be high and proud and judge everybody else. It's so that we can believe rightly and appropriate what God's given us so that we can put sin to death. The sword of the Spirit is what? The Word of God, Ephesians 6. God uses his word to put sin to death. Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. I think we've already said that, haven't we? But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, we see the power of the Spirit doing this work. This is a work of the Spirit. Not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord, Zechariah 4, 6. We need the power of the Spirit in our lives. Now, we need to understand that this doesn't mean that we let go and let God. We take the power he's given us and we give it the effort it needs by the power of his spirit to accomplish this. David went in the power of the spirit to slay Goliath. There's no way the 18-year-old boy could have slain Goliath without the power of the spirit working in and through him. There's no way you're going to defeat sin in your life except by the power of the Spirit, but you're going to have to attack this sin. In Colossians 1, Paul makes this statement toward the end. He's talking about this ministry of discipling people, and he says this in verse 29 of Colossians 1. <coughs> For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul was not a sluggard. He was not a slackard. He was not a sloth. He worked with all what? The energy that Christ had given him. So to do this, this is a command. He doesn't command the Holy Spirit to do this. He commands you to put sin to death. He commands me to put sin to death. Which is great news. Why? If he commands it, 
He's going to give us the grace to do what? Accomplish it. Isn't that great news? He's not asking us to do something that's impossible. Four, we already talked about it, growing gratitude. Treasure Christ. Replace scriptural truth with false ideas. Embrace humility. And four, growing gratitude. We're not a very grateful people. We're always looking for the next thing God's going to do for us. When you read Romans 1, 21 through 23, there's two condemnations for the people God's going to judge. One is they exchange the glory of God for the glory of the creation. And the second thing is they did not honor him or give him thanks. Again, one of our keys is to focus on Christ and be grateful for all that he's done in every situation in our life. This cuts the legs out from under sin. Listen to Ephesians 5.3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Notice this list here in Ephesians 5 is almost the same list we're dealing with here in Colossians 3. Be grateful. Do not be giving in to sin. Notice the words he uses here. Not even to be named among you as is proper for saints, which are in the next verse, which are out of place. In other words, this type of sin we're talking about should not be something that characterizes you because of who we are, because of who we are in Christ. We are above it because of Christ. Therefore, may we not be known by it. Sin is not consistent with being a child of the king will we ever become perfect no we won't but we should be having an upward climb friends fighting dealing with it fighting dealing with it continuing to move forward to continue to root sin out of our lives daily and then finally we have to understand we have to persevere this battle against sin, I wish I could tell you, go home this week and kill sin. Come back next week, we'll talk about something else to do. Wouldn't that be glory? That'd be glorious. But God has chosen to make us like Christ, and he's chosen to let us continue to have the sinful nature with us. And we put the sinful nature to death as we focus on Christ, and we're going to continue to fight this fight, but there's going to be progress and there's going to be victory as we move forward. Because it tells us here the people who were homosexual and sexually immoral and swindlers and all those people, those people had been changed in Colossians. They had been changed in Corinth. This is what he tells us in Colossians 1. He said, I'm rejoicing in the fruit I'm hearing as a result of the gospel. Your faith, your hope, your love. There is fruit. There is change taking place here. Once read about a missionary who had in his garden a shrub that bore poisonous leaves. At that time, he had a child who was prone to put everything with it into his mouth. Naturally, he dug the shrub out and threw it away. 
The shrub's roots, however, were very deep. Soon the shrub sprouted again. Repeatedly, the missionary had to dig it out. There was no solution but to inspect the ground every day and to dig up the shrub every time it surfaced. Indwelling sin is like that. It's like that. You will root it out. You'll make progress. It pops back up again. You have to deal with it again. It's like gardening an area. Have you ever went into an area that was all Bermuda and tried to create a garden? Wow. And if you don't use poison and if you don't put down a, a, a tarp on it, you can clean that out. It looks perfect. Within 10 days, you have more of the same thing. And you go back again and again, and you keep finding more of the root and more of the root, and you keep digging. This is a picture of our life. This is a picture of this passage. We're to continue to deal with the sin in our garden. We're going to continue to root it out. Obviously, the biggest weeds first, right? But we continue to work as we focus on Christ, enjoy the power of his spirit, and the desire to become like Christ. John Owens warns, we must be exercising mortification every day and in every duty. Sin will not die unless it's constantly weakened. Spare it and it will heal its wounds and recover its strength. We must continually watch against the operations of this principle of sin. In our duties, in our calling, in our conversation, in retirement, in our straits, in our enjoyments, and in all that we do, if we are negligent in any occasion, we shall suffer by it. Continue to starve out sin. Here's our final admonition. Galatians 6, 8 and 9. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, brothers and sisters. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. John Newton, toward the end of his life, was a, he was a slave trader. Remember, he came to faith in Christ. He never forgot his sin. He wrote Amazing Grace. Toward the end of his life, he made this comment. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. May that be our testimony at the end of our life is that Christ is a great savior. He loves you. He loves you unconditionally and he's given you the power to begin to root out the sin in your life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and Lord, I pray that you would energize us by the power of your spirit to tackle the sin in our lives and to put it to death as we treasure Jesus, as we lean upon the Holy Spirit for strength and power, as we look to the word to replace the false ideas that we have, as we rejoice with thankfulness for every 
progress that's made. As we pray continually, as we rejoice that one day we will be like you. Oh, Lord, we look for that day. We look forward to that day. And we thank you that it is as sure as Christ. Father, help anyone here who's discouraged with sin to know that there is hope and help in Jesus. If there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, Father, I pray that they might see their need for the all-sufficient Savior, that they would run to him, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Thank you, Jesus, for the rest of salvation that we have. Thank you for your steadfast love that never changes. And thank you that you'll never leave us or forsake us. In Jesus' name, amen.